Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at RiderFlex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the RiderFlex show for updates on new episodes. And by the way, if you haven't already, check out the book we recently launched, The RiderFlex Guide, Inspiring and Hiring, available for purchase on Amazon. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360, fuel your brand. Jamie Cutler on the RiderFlex podcast. Good morning, Jamie. How are you? I'm wonderful, Steve. Thanks for having me on today. I'm pretty excited. Yeah, man. Uh, pleasure. I'm looking forward to getting into it and we'll We'll get into air methods and talk all about it. By the way, for the listeners, it's airmethods.com. Uh, we'll get into that. But I want to I want to know about Jamie first. Uh, I was intrigued right away because my both of my sons wrestled in high school. So we were a, quote, wrestling family, if you will. And uh, I know you wrestled in college. So I don't, we don't have to make it a wrestling podcast. But obviously, I want to talk about all that. <laughs> yeah. You bet. Well, I mean, it was a significant part of my life growing up and then obviously it got me to college and that's a good thing. And, um, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things that just builds a lot of character, which is a great thing. It's true. Right. It, it really does. I, I've met very few wrestlers or wrestling families that don't have just strong moral morals, ethics, uh, you know, character, grit. Uh, I mean, there's a bunch of words in there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. it's, it's all that it really does i mean it's not a sport you know there's it's it's interesting because it's a sport that's got the the single because you're out there by yourself against one other guy so you've got that kind of man a man on man but it's a team sport too because you know obviously they you know you win titles and such so but what's interesting about it i think that's different than a lot of sports is you know it's just you so when you lose or when you win you walk away and you can't blame it on the guy next to you, you know, on the, on the football line or the, you know, guy who missed the three pointer, you know, who lost. And That's so, you know, it, it, it builds a lot of personal, you know, personal character is really the best way to describe it. And and you have to look in the mirror a lot, which I think is one of the benefits of that sport. Um, no doubt. It really, it, it, it really teaches you a lot about yourself. And uh, I'm, did you play football as well at high school? I did. I did. I I, uh, I actually played football in college for a year as well. Um, wow. I almost played football exclusively. Um, I had a. I happened to come from a, a football family. My grandfather played pro, as did two of my uncles. Oh, cool. um, so on my father's side. So you know, um, I have a little bit of football talent, which probably led to the wrestling talents as well. Um, but you know, it's it, wrestling just appealed to me more, frankly. You know, yeah. they let me do it for a year and and. Then they kind of said, you got to choose. And and Iowa State had just won the national title. And so there was really no choice for me. I could either be kind of a mediocre football player. I was a defensive end um, on a mediocre team or started heavyweight for the best team in the country at the time. So that was a pretty easy decision for me. Right. Yeah, no doubt about it. Was Gable the coach? No, Gable, um, Gable left. So Gable wrestled at Iowa State and then – he was a grad assistant and became assistant coach. And he tried to get the head coaching job at Iowa state, but they wouldn't give it to him because there was a guy named Harold Nichols there at the time. So that's when he moved to Iowa. So okay. when I was there, yeah. So when, when I was there, it was a guy named Jim Gibbons and a guy named Ed Bannock who actually wrestled at Iowa. Those guys were the two, they were co-head coaches, interestingly enough. And Ed Bannock was the big guy coach. He was a 198 pounder. So he recruited me and, and was the reason he was the primary reason I went to Iowa state was because, he was going to be the guy who trained me and he was, you know, he won a gold medal and three national titles. He was a, he was a stud. Wow. Uh, I'm guessing you won a couple of, did you win some state championships in high school? Yeah. Yeah. I wrestled for a high school called Dowling, which uh, we, we, my high school wrestling coach retired at something like 370 and one. So we lost one dual meet while I was uh, in my high school history when he was the head coach. So wow. we won, we won tons of titles and, you know, we lost one, one dual meet during his entire reign. So we were wow. kind of a powerhouse. So, um, right. you know, it was, it was, you know, easy to wrestle there and then, you know, sort of a natural path for me to go from there. Your mom and dad spent lots of hours in the gym. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. I've got some memories about that, but, uh, uh, I could tell that story, but we'll probably run out of time. <laughs> you know what, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what, really quickly, then we can move into the other stuff. But, uh, you know, I kind of miss the the dads kind of form a, a little bit of a, of a bond, you know, because you're with these other parents all day yes. long, all season. And, uh, yep. you know, several, I kind of miss that. There were several dads that I really connected with. And, you know, we spent all those years with them on the road. And uh, yep. uh, I can't tell you how many times we'd be out in the, camper over at the hotel and we'd be outside taking a break and having some some beers and doing some drinks and and my wife would be calling me get your ass in here he's got he's up next stop messing around <laughs> yeah you know it's funny that you say that because you know my son doesn't wrestle actually he's a lacrosse player which okay. uh, is and you know it's the same thing he's a he, he's on travel teams and such and um, his high school here in Colorado is quite good at, at lacrosse. Uh -huh. So, you know, I've, I've made relationships with all those dads and, you know, you, you spend, you kind of go through seasons and such and you get to be friendly with, oh, yeah. with all of them. And so it's the same, same thing, right. You, you know, I kind of, when he graduates, he's, he's going into his, uh, he's just finishing his junior year. So when he graduates, I'm going to miss all those connections. Yep. Just yep. exactly like you said. Yeah. So, so he's a, uh, he's a junior. He's a junior. Yep. You got any, any other kids? Uh, I've got a freshman in college, a daughter who's a freshman in college. And so, yeah, we're about to be empty nesters. I'm not sure what we're going to do. <laughs> uh, it is, uh, it's an adjustment, my friend. I can tell you, I'm 55. All four of ours are out. We're, ours are like 28, 28 to 32. And uh, yeah, it is weird, especially when you spent all those years with the whole athletic stuff and the sports and activities. It yeah. took us, it really, it took Kim and I about a year before we kind of got into our own groove. And I, I started doing a lot more jeeping and camping and mountain stuff and some solo camping stuff, which I rarely did before. And it, it, it was weird. I'll, I'll tell you, there were, there were many days you're kind of sitting at home. It's super quiet. You're like, wow, what, what do I do with my life now? I don't, <laughs> I don't have a tournament to go to. I don't have all these Saturday and Sunday. I don't have practices to get people to your free time. Somebody, somebody told me once, once your kids get, you know, into and through college, your free time and your money go up exponentially. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> the, the, amount of money Kim and I can live on is unbelievable. I mean, we, we, I mean, we just don't hardly spend anything. I, I was telling right. you, I'm like, wow, like, how did we even deal? How do we manage with those four kids? And I don't even know how we did that. I don't know how we did it, but anyway. Uh, yeah, so yeah. you, you got a junior. Okay. Uh, tell me, uh, so you married, you, uh, uh, still, okay. Tell me, tell me, how'd you meet your wife? Tell me about her. Uh, yeah. So my wife's got probably the more interesting story. Okay. I actually met my wife in Telluride, Colorado. Oh. Um, and I lived in Telluride in the, in the sort of late nineties, um, after I got out of graduate school, I tried out for the 96 Olympic team and then, um, got hurt in the trials, finished third and, uh, ended up deciding, you know, I, my family was in resort management growing up and my uncle had a place out of the West coast and I went out and worked for him after graduate school for a year, but I really wanted to be in the mountains. And so he had some connections and I went to work for a resort management company in Telluride, um, that was based out of Telluride. They own ski and skis, uh, and it was my first big job really. Um, they, uh, they did, uh, sea and ski condo management across the U S. Um, and so I ran their regional IT for the Western U S out of Telluride, believe it or not. My I wife did, was, I just, I don't want to go down that path maybe yet, but I, I was looking at your, what you majored in in college and I'm like, how did you get into IT? I don't understand, but look, we'll come back to that. Tell me about your, tell me about great your story. Great story as well. So <laughs> she was the company controller and she, uh, took them public. Uh, she moved to Telluride. She has the greatest story on the planet. She lived in Manhattan and was working for Hertz. And they offered her the number two finance job at Hertz. And she decided to take a vacation to see her cousin in Telluride before she decided she had to move to Orlando because that's where Hertz is kind of one of their big places are. And so they, she got offered the job, went on vacation to Telluride, came back and had this kind of epiphany that she decided she was, I don't know, 30 something. And she decided she didn't want to, you know, she'd been in Manhattan for, I don't know, she went to NYU in grad school and then, and then went to work for one of the big three ended up at Hertz and decided she wanted to change her life. And so she picked up, she turned the job down and the CFO at Hertz at the time called the biggest demotion in Hertz history because she turned the job down to be the number two person in finance at Hertz. And they got her a job working the rental counter at the Hertz counter at the Telluride airport. So she literally went from 
you know, the number two job in finance at Hertz to work in the, the rental counter at the, at the Telluride wow. airport. Wow. So they still, they still tell that story. So she and I worked at the same company uh, and we got to be, you know, she was kind of, you know, a little a couple of years older than me, but you know, a little, little different. So first couple of years we were just friends and then we started dating and uh, that was it. And then we both moved to Denver about a year apart. And, and so we met down there and, and uh, been together ever since 23 years now. Oh, congratulations. What part of New York is she from? Because I'm just one. I mean, you know, New York to Telluride, that, that's, that's a different planet. Is she, is she from Manhattan or was she from upstate or? No, she's from upstate. She's from Rochester originally. And okay. she went to Colgate and then she went to graduate school at NYU. And then, you know, which is in Manhattan. And then she stuck around and, and went to work as a bankruptcy consultant for, I think, Ernst & Young at the time. Um, and then was there. And so, you know, I just fortuitous. I happened to move there and she happened to move there and we met and we've been together ever since. Very cool. Oh, very yeah. nice. Good, good story. All right. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. How about your mom and dad a little bit and any siblings? Uh, I wanted to just ask about them, if you don't mind. Yeah. Tell me about them. Yeah. Only child. Um, you know, my parents were, were married um, for a very short amount of time, actually, after really I was kind of the reason. Um, so Okay. You know, my mother passed away. Oh, she had kind of an unfortunate uh, stroke uh, about oh, 10 years ago now. Uh, just a birth defect, actually. So she passed away about 10 years ago. My father's still alive. Um, got some step siblings that I'm, um, you know, familiar with, but not super close to um, that he remarried and had a couple had a couple kids. Uh, he's still kicking and in, uh, in Des Moines, Iowa. And, and so. Who which which parent traveled did, did all the wrestling travel and all that that, that that was my mom she was the you know that's the greatest story my favorite story about her is when i was in junior high which is a little after i started wrestling i was out on the mat in you know small town iowa because i i kind of grew up right outside des moines and went to school sort of right at the now it's a huge place but at the time it was kind of a small town um and des moines grown into it and so I was wrestling for this small school and wrestling this kid. And I was out there kind of beating him pretty bad. And my mom stood up in the middle of the audience and screamed at me, Jamie, will you quit dancing with him and just pin him? <laughs> and I'll never forget that story because people told that story about her for years and years and years. But she went to everything. She she never missed a meet or anything. And um, she was a big supporter of mine. So she was she was she's probably the toughest human being I've ever met still to this day. My mom. So she was a good model for me. Yeah. She didn't reach. So you didn't have to deal with any stepdads, though. She never remarried. She never remarried. I think she was, you know, honestly, um, you know, I hate to say it this way, but I mean, honestly, I was her, you know, only child. I was, you know, she was kind of focused on me. And so she never, never got remarried, um, dated, but not not a big deal. I think she was I think she wanted to introduce another person into into that situation. So she uh, was kudos. just there for me. Yeah. Kudos to her if she's listening to us because. Uh, uh... Yeah, I know to take a kid through the level of athletics that you went through through high school and college, that that takes a huge commitment from the parents. It's, and, it does, yeah. yeah. It's, yes. And that was the thing. And I think that's probably, you know, you just hit on the note. You said she never remarried. She was dedicated to making me successful, frankly. Um, and and really who I am as a person today is, is greatly, you know, due to her because okay. – you know, she was, she was, she had all the fortitude. She was smart. She was relentless. Um, and she was dedicated to, you know, to me. I mean, I, she put me in every damn lesson I can think of. I played every sport I did, you know, she made me, and then she made me go to art lessons and music lessons and all the stuff that every kid who plays sports hates, but she was, she refused to not let me be well-rounded. And, you know, she, she, who I am today is, is a reflection of who she was as a person. So, um, and you, you you did a great job of ferreting all the information out of me because I don't talk about that a lot. But yeah, she 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 really was uh, she was dedicated to to you know raising her son right, and she did, and I hopefully she did a good job. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. How how does a political science you know major what you know you, you move to, you go up to tell you right, and they're like, hey, we're going to give you an IT job. How did that happen? Well, so so. Um, I was going to be an attorney because I my family was in a bunch of small businesses and one side was in a, a law firm and I thought ah, I'll go go be an attorney political science kind of leads you there, um, but when I got into graduate school and I was a grad assistant for the wrestling team 
I had this major professor, and I was always good with technology, just kind of naturally, who had a triple PhD. He was uh, com- he was computer science, statistics, and and political science. And so I ended up doing a bunch of programming for him wow. back in the original sort of R code on statistical data sets. Uh, he was he was doing pol- political polling data set uh, analysis, and and so you know I was kind of I worked at the computer lab in the summers and and some part time when when. I could from, you know, not being busy with wrestling, but I did in graduate school a lot because I just, it was good at it. And I, but at the time, really, if you weren't going to be a programmer, there wasn't a track into IT, right? There was, you know, you kind of, and I didn't really love programming, but ended up doing it. And so, you know, when I went to work for my uncle right out of graduate school, he, he needed somebody to do all of their technology, phone systems and you name it. So I did that for him. Okay. Um, and I did that for a year, kind of, I just had a natural talent for it. And so, you know, he made a couple phone calls when I moved to Telluride and got me the job and it just sort of kept going. I, everywhere I've been, I've just naturally been better at technology and sort of, and, and really, I think my skill set is not just technology, but the application of technology for business benefit. And that's probably one of the differentiators for me um, and, and a lot of people is that I'm not really technology for technology's sake. I like technology, but I look at it and I've always been good with it because I look at it like, how does it benefit the business that, that, you know, I'm, I'm working for? How do we apply it in a way that makes the benefit to the company either, you know, you know, lower the cost, increase the profitability, those kind of things. And, and obviously any CEO is going to like that sort of mindset. So yeah. it's always just, you know, cause I grew up in family owned businesses. And so for me, it was a natural transition to say, well, we're not going to just put in technology and hope it works. And just because it's cool, we're going to go, well, what does it do for this business? And is that the right aspect for it? Um, so, you know, that for me, that's that's kind of how, how I got into technology and how my careers progressed as well is sort of that thought pattern is the best way to say it. And then your leadership skills, your people skills, your communication skills pushed you into uh, you know, executive type positions and leadership roles pretty quickly as you moved along, I'm guessing. That's what I figured happened. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I mean, I, I think one of the things that sometimes folks in technology suffer from a little bit and people yes. get a natural path, right, where they say, I either want to stay technical or I want to go into management yep. is they're not great with people. They don't yeah. have what I call, you know, they don't have the EQ side of things. They have, right. they have good, they're smart but they're not good with people. And I think because I grew up in businesses that forced me to interact with people and did that from the time that I was very young, I worked at, I I remember working a cash register at a store, um, you know, in one of the properties we owned when I was 10, right. Cause they didn't have, you know, labor laws don't apply when you're, you know, the son of the owners. Um, So that was free labor. Um, You know, you just, you end up, Yep. working with people a lot and and honestly that's the that's one of the tricks to becoming a great leader is really understanding people because you know you don't you don't run a technology group or or run anything in a business by yourself it's all about people right yep. and so for me that's the other side of the, the element right is one thinking about how technology is applied well but two how to lead and how to and how to work with my peers and in in, across the you know the businesses that I've worked for and also how to be what I call what I kind of think of as sort of a steward leader, right? Because all the people that work for me, they're here because they believe that I can help them in their career or that it's a good company to work for, or that I'm going to provide a good environment and that I'm going to have their back in the in the way that allows them to be successful, which is success for the company, success for me, all those kind of things. And it's and it's something I've learned, right? When I first started in management, I probably was a little harder than I am today. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine based on your background. (laughs) Yeah. But, but you sort of learn, right. That, 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 you know, what happens is if you give people, nobody wants to fail. And if you give people good leadership and you give them a good sort of direction, they want to succeed no matter what it is. Right. And, and so, you know, I think that those are things that really, you know, if I could, if I could talk to the, to your audience and say, look, if you're looking for a career in technology management, what are the things to focus on? One, understanding, you know, how to drive technology forward to the benefit of the business. Two, understanding the motivations of all your peers and, and yes. what's going on with the company. And right. three, understand how to enable your employees, the folks that work for you, and, and help help them, plow the road for them, right? So those are the things, the lessons I've learned over the course of, 
progressing in my career. Boy, Sometimes you, with a little blood on the steps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, out of the three you mentioned, the second one is a great point that a lot of people forget and don't bring up on the podcast. You know, the motivation and thought process and feelings of your peers, the people that you, yeah. you need to bring along with you that may not technically report to you. That is an important piece that a lot of folks forget about. <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, if you think about it, right, I mean, how you interact with, if you if you look at an average CIO or a CIO of most companies, you're going to interact with the head of operations, the head of HR, legal, right? Yeah. You know, all kinds of CEOs. You're going to interact with different people who have different, not only approaches, but different things they're trying to accomplish. That's right. So knowing where they're coming from, like what is their you know motivation, and it's not necessarily a, even a conscious motivation. Operations guys or or or, or girls and women are, are all focused on the same thing. They have to execute, right? right? And they and they need to do it quickly because they're held to those standards. Whereas somebody in sales, the head of sales, my current CEO was head of sales for for 3M and GE at different times. Those folks have different motivations, right? They're trying to close deals, yep. and so you have to be able to pivot. And work with all those different kinds of people to be successful because the motivations they have in needing technology is very different. Timelines are different. Kind of technology they have that they want is different. So that's actually a key to success as well. And and it and it it's sort of the other side of the coin of knowing how your team operates. That speech right there uh, leads me to believe that you are headed towards a CEO seat at some point somewhere, whether it's Air <laughs> Methods or something else, because that. That sounded like a CEO right there to me, not just a not just a VP or a CIO. Just so you know, <laughs> I I appreciate the thought. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. You know, this life is long. <laughs> uh, very good stuff. So we don't have to touch base on you know each stop along your career. Great career, and by the way, Jamie Cutler's on LinkedIn. You can you can tag him there. You can see all the details and stops that he had there. But um, let's kind of get into. Uh, why don't we start with how you got to Air Methods? Was it a friend? Was it a recruiter? Did you know somebody? Talk to me about how yeah. it all came from. Yeah. Yeah. So I was at I was at QEP Resources, which was a spinoff of a company called Questar at the time. Um, Questar was a big sort of they're kind of Excel Energy, but a little more west. They do Utah and, and or at the time they did Utah and Wyoming and little California and Idaho. They did natural gas to homes. Um, they they what happened was. They, they were a driller and a, and a natural gas provider as well. And that was a division of the company. And they spun that. Um, and I, you know, moved it to Denver because the, honestly, that part of their company got so big that they, it got bigger than the parent. And so they created this sort of a new entity and, and spun it called QEP resources. Okay. I got recruited in there and I was there for about eight years. Um, what happened towards the end of QEP is that we got two activist investors, uh, one called Elliott Management, which if you pay attention to activist investors, Elliott, uh, Elliott Management's the one that just bought into Salesforce. Oh. Um, and, and so they're big boys on the, yeah. on the block. When they buy into you, they, they have your playbook. Um, <laughs> and really, really what they wanted to have QEP do is become a pure play provider. QEP had a midstream and we had five, we operated in five bases and they wanted us to get rid of all those assets and focus just on the Permian Basin. Okay. Um, and they had a lot of leverage. And so they kind of forced the company to divest a bunch of assets uh -huh. and they tend to come in and they want to replace the CEO and they kind of yep. take your board yep. over. Yep. And yep. so they, they, and so I was there through all that transition, they put in retention agreements and we all stuck around to kind of, do a couple year transition, which was the last couple of years. And about that time, actually, the um, Air Methods job just happened to come along towards the end of my tenure at QEP um, recruiter. And they were looking for somebody who'd done transformational IT. And really by that, that word is thrown around a lot. Really what they wanted was somebody who could come in to an environment that had underinvested in IT, didn't really have a great, you know, sort of group of people that were forward and business thinking um, who and who had built those those environments. And really at both Mark West and QEP, that's why I'd been brought in was in both situations for different reasons. They had they had not invested enough IT and they didn't hadn't brought it forward enough. And they were really looking for somebody at both of my previous companies to hear that could come in and, you know, build up the technology, make it forward looking, 
do align it with the business most importantly and make sure that the people that were there, you know, really were thinking not just at the CIO role, but at every level about how to make the business better. And so they wanted that experience. Um, and, and the company had been taken private a couple of years prior to that. And when they, you know, when it was taken private, the owner looked at it and said, yeah, I just, we just don't see what we need to in the technology front. And we okay. think that'll be a, that'll be a crutch. Uh, or sorry, that'll be a be a, a, a something that needs a crutch down the road if we don't hire the right leader. So uh-huh. they looked for somebody who had that background, um, and and the timing was right, you know, the, for an exit from QEP to come here. And I like I like the a, a couple of things I really liked about Air Methods. One, the mission. You know, we save people's lives for a living. I mean, we we are air ambulance. So if you've you know, if you've got, you know, somebody who's ever been transported by helicopter or fixed wing because they were injured or they were in a life-threatening situation, it was likely us. We're, we're the largest one in the country. We have about 300 locations, 5,000 employees. And what we do for a living is, is transport people who are in urgent care crisis, either from hospital to hospital or from scene of accident to hospital. So literally most of our employees save people's lives for a living. That's I mean, yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's a it's a great mission. You can't you can't not love it. Right. So um, that and, you know, the company was was successful and there was an opportunity to come in and do what I really like to do, which is how do I add value to that by taking hiring the right people, rebuilding the technology environment and moving it forward. And so the opportunity, the opportunity to come in and do that um, and to to help serve sort of the company mission, which is again, saving people's lives, you know, our CEO writes a weekly blog, uh, sends it out to the whole company. And one of the things she talks about is whose life did we save this week? So she gets a story from, from our field every week. And she sends it out that says, look, here's my story of the week about, you know, what happened in this situation. And we, you know, and, and, and so it's kind of, it's kind of a cool place to work from that perspective. And so for me, the transition to QEP was natural because I got to work at a cool place and, I got to do what I love to do, which is, you know, leverage the technology side to make the company better. So, so Air Methods is owned by a PE firm uh, called, yes. American, uh, called American Securities. Is that correct? Okay. That is correct. Yep. PE firm out of New York. Um, good firm. You know, they, they do this for a living. They took them private, I think in 2017, if I remember correctly, that was prior to me, but um, you know, they were public prior to that. And uh, you know, so um, P firm bought us and so we're privately held. P, uh, if they bought it in 2017, boy, you're coming up on the five year mark and I know the timeline for PE firms. Uh, so are they, what are they, are they acquiring others? I don't know how much you can talk about or how much you can share. Are they going to flip it? Do you know what, what, I mean, I, I know you can't tell me the, the top secret plan, but I just know generally how PE firms and timelines work. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, there's certainly an eye to an exit, um, you know, what that exit looks like and the timing on that, I can't really talk about, but, but, you know, you, you are correct that, that, you know, PE firms have a, have a generally a seven year hold is the American securities kind of time frame, but sometimes they hold companies longer, sometimes shorter. It just depends on how the company's doing. So, you know, for, for these guys, we don't, you know, we're just kind of rolling along and, um, and uh, you're you're right about that. You know, you're inside into PE firms, but you know the timing on that is is something I, I really unfortunately can't talk about. Understood. Uh, yeah. And um, you know, I also know that when PE firms did they buy the whole thing? Are there? Uh... Yes, they're sole owner. They're sole owner. I got you. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. All right. Very good. Did they bring in the CEO too that you mentioned? Did they bring yeah, in- so yeah, so it was real interesting. When I got hired, there was a guy named Steve Gorman who actually sits on American Securities Board. But Steve's got, you know, he's one of those heavy hitter guys. He was the COO at Delta before he retired. Um, and and well, actually, he was the COO at Delta. He was the turnaround guy at Delta, and then he was the CEO at Borden for a bunch of years. Then he kind of retired, and American Securities put him on the board when they bought Air Methods because of his airline background. Um, he, he, they asked him if he'd kind of come in and, and run it. Cause the old CEO retired, the guy was running it when it became private. So gotcha. Steve was here for a couple of years to just sort of transition it into private equity and, and sort of optimize it. And then our head of sales at the time was a, a woman named Jalen Williams, who had worked at, as I mentioned, uh, 3E, uh, or 3M and GE, um, as head of sales for a lot of their, their medical and other areas, uh, fabulous leader. Um, and so she was here as head of sales and 
she became uh, Steve's successor when he, because he was here for a year, you know, just to kind of, it's very common for PE firms to replace leadership. No doubt. So, yeah. So she's been, she's been the CEO for a couple of years now. Okay. Um, and, you know, we, she's, she's presided over some really fantastic results and, and she's a, she's a people first leader uh, is the best way to describe her. Very good. And how big, how many employees now for Air Methods? Five, a little over 5,000. 5,000 total. Okay. Very good. And can you, um, for the listeners that might be curious, what's the, what's the business model? I mean, do, do you get paid by the, by insurance companies, by the hospitals? I don't, I've never quite understood the model. You know, I always see the, the helicopters and the rescue teams and I'm like, okay, well, that's a different company. So how, how does that work? I don't know. Can you give yeah. us, the, give us the commoner, the commoner version here so we understand? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's something I had to learn when I got here because I didn't know this business model either. Um, so we do think of it as just like you go see your doctor, right? You go see your doctor. That's a provider. The provider, your doctor, bills the insurance company. And then the insurance company, you you pay some portion of that. And then the insurance company pays the rest of it. But we get paid by um, basically by insurance companies. Now, we, we also get paid by Medicare, Medicaid, um, you know, by the government. So effectively, because we're an urgent care provider, uh-huh. we don't get to ever turn somebody down. Not that we would, but that's part of the gig. So we don't know when we pick up a, a patient, if they have insurance, if they don't, if they're Medicare, Medicaid, um, what their insurance carrier is. So we actually have a billing arm in California called patient billing systems that effectively what happens is after we do the transport, then patient billing systems has traditionally been an advocate for our patient to right, either get insurance reimbursement. Um, and we're about 80% in network uh, with insurance providers. Uh, or get reimbursed by the government. You know, the government, of course, being the government is the lowest payer of everybody. <laughs> um, so we actually, um, we bill directly. We don't bill the patient. We bill on the patient's behalf to whoever the third party is, whether it's Medicare, Medicaid, insurance provider, directly to the government, if it's like Veterans Administration or, or a government employee, et cetera. So we do that billing as well. So it's just like any other sort of healthcare type situation. And you're legally held to the same laws that apply to emergency rooms. You can't, you have to, you basically have to help the person. Is that right? I mean, I don't, I know there's a law or some kind like that. I think I I don't know. hundred percent correct. If we go to the scene of an accident, we pick the person up and transport them period. That's the end of the conversation. And we, you know, we don't, we don't ask. We just, you know, everything that we worry about as far as as reimbursement is done after the fact, right? And so, you know, we, we, um, you know, about, about a third of our transports. So we do about 111,000 patient transports a year, wow. um, last year. And about a third of those will be what we refer to as scene of accident or scene of incident where okay. we're called to something where somebody has been injured or has, has a situation, whatever it might be, um, where they need an ur- urgent transport. And we do do some ambulance transport, although it's a very small percentage. Um, and then two thirds of it is hospital to hospital. And typically what that is for us is somebody will go to a hospital, like a regional hospital, and they'll need trans- some kind of care that mm-hmm. can't be provided there. And so we will move them from from one hospital to another to a tier one facility. So um, that's mm-hmm. that's kind of how we work. Do you contract out the pilot? Are the are the pilots employees? Are they contractors? And do you and two part question? Do you own all the helicopters or are those leased? I'm just curious about all that. Yeah, so those are those are excellent questions um, and, and sort of insightful questions. Um, we have three different models of how we do business. Um, one is we will provide, for instance, for a hospital chain, let's say, um, you know, pick your hospital, local hospital chain. We will partner with them and we will provide the helicopter and the pilot and they will provide um, every one of our flights has to have a minimum one clinician on board, right? So, so uh, legally, we only we won't take off without that. So, um, in some cases, and we call those hospital-based systems, we will partner with a hospital. We'll actually lay logo, and we have we have a couple other divisions within Air Methods. We have a manufacturing division where we paint helicopters, retrofit them, you name it. We'll take a just bare metal, and we'll do all the work. Um, that's called United Rotorcraft. That's out by Centennial Airport. And it's basically a manufacturing facility. So what we'll do is we'll partner with them. We'll logo the helicopter with their 
you know, hospital name and all that. And we'll, we'll staff the pilots and our pilots are um, all in place. Um, so we don't contract any of those folks as are the clinicians. Um, and, um, and then they'll provide, in this case, the hospital oftentimes will provide the clinician and we'll take off and land that you see the heli sometimes the heliport at the hospital. That's a hospital-based system. We also have what we call community-based systems okay. where it's all us. And so we just put a base because we know there's demand and we will partner with the 911, the local fire sheriff, no matter what it is, because we have a, those are usually rural, not always, but a lot of times rural or, or more suburban, for instance. Um, and we'll just put a base there and then we'll take calls from anybody. Um, and we have a, a big call center in Omaha uh, called Aircom, where all of our calls and all of our, it's, we have electronic, um, you know, requesting that goes on as well, um, that comes all from the fields, and we'll take all those to a central location and then dispatch, and then we monitor everything. We we have to we're, we're under the same requirement as any as any FA requirement. It's called Part Twenty One, okay. um, where we have to monitor every flight constantly, right? So, and we're twenty four seven, three sixty five. So we have a flight monitoring in the base of our Denver office here where we monitor every flight that's going on, you know, across the United States. And we have about 300 locations across the U S um, uh, and we operate and in Hawaii too. Are the call centers. So if I call nine one one, it goes to the nine one one facility and then the nine one one facility routes it to your call center to dispatch the pilot. Is that right? Is that how that works? It, it could it could be the it could be them it could be the emergency services that show up so in other words it could be the 911 center but they may not always know the the level of care needed uh, so let's say that it's scene of accident it might be the fire department that shows oh, up or or a sheriff that shows up they may actually just ask for dispatch um and in the hot case of the hospitals the hospitals actually will request our dispatch so if it's hospital hospital transport they will know and they will basically request a dispatch. We have some electronic software we use as well, where they can just put in the information and request it. Um, and then we will go to the hospital and pick up. So it's, it's, it's literally every, everything you mentioned and more. So we take it, we take it basically from anybody who needs care. Um, okay. And, okay. and so our dispatch center, sometimes it's nine on one, sometimes it's fire department, hospitals, it, it, it varies across the country and across the situation as well. Helicopters are all owned by us. Some of them are leased um, and some of them are outright owned. Um, we've got a pretty large fleet, as you might imagine. Why, why do you lease some some and buy some? I guess it just depend on availability or, or inventory or why, why the... It, it's all that. It, sometimes the leases just turn into we own it, right? So that we might lease it for a certain amount of time. And then when it's done, we... We the lease is over and we just continue to it's easier to maintain than buy a new one. So we I'm, have it varies across. I'm curious. Uh, I'm assuming that is a, a depreciating asset as soon as you buy it. Is that, is that like buying an RV and a car? As soon as you buy it, it's just doing this. It just does this. It's a very depreciating asset. It's a very capital intensive uh, <laughs> business. Um, helicopters are, you know, 10 to $20 million to buy and then you have to maintain them. So our, our direct maintenance costs, and that's one of the things we've really done a great job of, of in the technology side, really providing insight into. They didn't know how much money they were really spending. It took a lot of effort to understand the maintenance costs and all those things. And we've, and we've really automated all that and provided insight into it through, through some, some, automation and software uh, insights that we've provided but um yeah it's a depreciating asset so you know effectively that's why we normally lease because there's no value in owning it so we lease it and then you know sometimes the lease runs out and the helicopter still has useful life left and you can continue to maintain them and then you know sometimes what we'll do is resell it if it gets to a point where we don't think it's useful for us but somebody else might find it useful and then we'll buy a new one and and a lot of times when we partner with with hospitals and we do a lot of partnering on indian reservations and military bases where we call those alternative delivery models where it's very similar to the hospital-based system but we may provide all of it but it's their it's only for their use in other words we'll go to a military base and we'll provide all the emergency rescue services for them right but it's contracted strictly to them so we do all of we do all of that, and sometimes when we do those deals, they'll want a new helicopter as part of it, and then we'll just provide the helicopter lease as a part of that and bill it back to them. 
Oh, I see. I see. How many helicopters do you have active? Oh, gosh. Um, quite a few. Four or five hundred. Four or five hundred. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, very good. Uh, you're, I'm trying to figure out yourself, the, the lady that's the CEO. What's her, what's her name? Jalen Williams is her yeah. name. She was the salesperson. Who, who, is she selling to the hospital? Is she going to a hospital organization and saying, hey, look, go with us for your air transportation versus ABC company? Is that who she's selling to or who is she Correct. selling? It's, it's, it's everybody we mentioned. So, a lot of hospital, we do a lot of big hospital partnerships so that, you know, we're partnered with literally every large hospital chain in the country. So okay. she's selling to those guys because um, that is that's, you know, two thirds of our transports, but okay. also the communities as well. So, you know, when the communities that we service, um, she's not selling per se. It's more of a what I would just call a customer relationship manager at that point. But okay. we still call them sales folks. We they may go visit, you know, the the local sheriff or the 911 center or who, whomever does a lot of the dispatch in that particular area um, is, is who she would sell to. So it's all those things. Um, a lot of the focus you've hit it right on the nail head is the large hospital chains that we partner with okay. because we do so many transports for them. Uh, okay. I'm just trying to figure out how your, your, is your competition trying to move in and uh, they're like, look, uh, what's your contract with there with, with, you know, with, with their methods, how many does it run out? And here's a better contract. I was just wondering what the, what, what the competitive landscape is like. <laughs> it, it, it looks exactly like that. There's really only one other provider our size. Um, and that's, you know, AMR, GMR, which is oh. also privately held. They don't, they're not quite as big on the flight side as us. They're more ground based. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, okay. we're the two biggest. Uh, they're owned by BlackRock. Um, and so, you know, there is a little bit of that. What happens is, you know, you tend to divide the country up or that your area is up and then we have a certain area and they have a certain area. And occasionally we, we you know, occasionally those contracts will come up and somebody will go, oh, I just want to try somebody new for a while. Or, uh, we, yeah. you know, we it's, yeah. it's a lot of that sort of okay. insular passing around of, of that, that. But we always look for market share. In other words, if we think if yeah. we think we're operating in this county and the next county over, we think we can get some flights out of there. We might move a base ten miles and, okay. and try to get try to get more transport. So we do a lot of that competitive analysis as well. I'm envisioning a dark, smoky room with uh, uh, glasses of bourbon and several people sitting around the table, and some of them are from BlackRock and some of them are from American Securities, and they're making they're having conversations. <laughs> well, unfortunately, that that couldn't happen because um, there's, you know, because we're the two biggest and we have such a huge share. Okay. We can't we oh. can't really. It's, can't it's it. a, the, yeah, the federal anti-competitive, you know, basically statute keeps us from being um, ever, ever doing that. So oh. we're, we're truly and there's a few smaller ones out there, but the market is very consolidated. I would yeah, it sounds like it is. Yeah, it sounds like it is. Here's two questions. I know we're getting towards the back end here. Two, two kind of outside the lines questions. I'm just curious about. Uh, are you held to let Let's say there was a uh, not a pandemic, but a but some other. I don't know. A meteor is headed towards the Earth or something huge, right? A volcano, whatever. Does mm -hmm. the government agencies, does the state or anybody, do they have the power to say? I need your 500 helicopters to do this. And, and you have to like follow their orders in some sort of emergency act or something. Actually, you know, really no. So FEMA is, is the group that sort of manages all that. And what FEMA does is they contract that out. And okay. so every, every four or five years, FEMA, like, like think about the hurricanes that have occurred. Okay. We will, we will offer our, our helicopters up in emergencies, but FEMA actually has a contract with GMR, AMR, that they can mobilize there. So they pay um, air medical response, which is what AMR stands for. And they've got a contract with AMR. And basically, if they're, if FEMA activates them, then all of AMR's helicopters become dedicated to FEMA. So, I see. Effective, so effectively, they they do that in advance, more or less, but um, they do it via contract. So, I, I you know, the way we operate, I, you know, I suppose the federal government could theoretically do that with anybody. Right. But we they that's not something they do. 
they will call us and ask us and we have it depending on the situation dedicated you know what we'll do is we'll say look we're not going to do any transports anyway we'll absolutely dedicate a helicopter to this emergency response and then we'll just do one-off contracts with those situations but we but but they won't they won't um I'm, i'm trying to think of what that would really be they they won't come in and and sort of you know you know take our helicopters from us okay. um they have a contract with amr to do that with them though okay curious yeah you know i've thought about you guys a few times i go to the mountains in colorado a lot and wyoming and i do a lot of solo uh stuff and uh and i'm 55 doing solo <laughs> when you're 55 is not not always the wisest thing uh so i have a i have a be- i have a sos beacon and a, a you know I got a couple of devices where I can press a button and the helicopter comes or whatever. Uh, yep. That's <laughs> that actually interesting. Enough, that's not us. So that's typically um, a search and rescue. And so, oh, and so we don't, we, we have done a little search and rescue in the past, okay. but it doesn't really, it, it's, it's kind of a different thing than what oh, we do. So, so search and rescues tend to, those are tend to be governmental and they tend to have a dedicated helicopter somewhere that like it's county it's you know it's county or state that typically does that now what we do do which is interesting we build firehawks so we just sold two of those to the state of colorado which are firefighting helicopters oh. so effectively we have a, we we have helicopters in both california and um colorado that will hover over a lake put a siphon down in the lake and suck the water up into a tank and then go drop it on a fire so our UR facility builds a lot of those, um, which is pretty cool. Now, typically, again, we end up just, you know, we just provide those, the helicopter to the to the state and they fly them. But, you know, but we're the ones who build all those. Post have helicopters, we build those as well. I have a tech question for you. This is this is for a CIO uh, of any kind. So um, sure. uh, this chat GPT, which I'm sure yeah. as a CIO guy, you've played around with it, you know about it. Uh, you know, even as a recruiting firm, so our our day job besides our podcast is a recruiting and staffing firm at RiderFlex, and so we, uh, you know, we're playing around with it. How can it help us? Is this is this something the recruiters can use? Is this something we can use for social media posts, whatever? And uh, so I, 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 as the CEO of RiderFlex, I'm like, okay, let me see what this is, and so I start playing around with it. I'm like, oh, shit, okay, this is whoa, whoa, whoa. Can this thing this thing can write code. This thing can uh, like I'm like whoa, whoa whoa, and my immediate thought I want to get your opinion on ChatGPT overall. But I two part question. Uh, my other thought was, as a recruiting firm, the most cocky candidates on the planet over the last three years have been software engineers because they're in such high demand. And I was thinking as a as an executive recruiter, I'm like, okay, the days of software engineers being cocky might be coming to uh an end if this technology continues <laughs> so yeah just curious to get your thoughts as we wrap up here you know the way i look at this and i and i have kind of a different view of it is you know the human sort of species if you look at the last 120 years of technology what has been the driving force of what we use technology for and it's been to take away and commoditize the things that the human race doesn't want to do anymore. In other words, why is technology, why do we keep pushing the boundaries of technology? Well, I don't want a vacuum. So now we've got robot vacuums, right? I don't want to, driving my car is boring. So now I've got cars that self-drive or we're almost to that. Um, And so, you know, really what we do as a species is we try to take away the things that we don't want to do. And we try to, automate those in some way, shape, or form, right? That's what businesses do. That's been the driving force. Chat, this particular version of AI, and I'm not sure if I consider it to be truly AI as much as I consider it to be really advanced programming okay. tool that that has the ability to learn from its own mistakes. And maybe that's AI. I don't think we're at AI, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what you're seeing is really advanced technology that takes away your point the redundancy of software programming right because what happens is most people when they go to learn software programming they learn how to do it and it's done the same way why because that's best practice and really what chat does is it, it in its in its programming sense 
it's automating the best practices for 80% of it. It's 80-20 rule, right? There's going to be 20% that the good software programmers stay around for. And the 80% of it that you go, I don't need that. I can have these this automation tool do it. Well, that's mm-hmm. the goal, right? And I think this is just another step in that goal. And so you're right. You know, the 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 days of the commoditized software programmer being overvalued for what they actually contribute are going to go away. And it's <laughs> like everything else, right? It's like it's just reached that state, you know, or it's going to continue to evolve into that state. And that's what I see these things doing is, you know, the, the, the scary piece. And I think there's a lesson for all of us here is sometimes you have to go do those things just to flex the muscle and remember how to do them because, you know, it, yeah, I don't want to do that, but every once in a while you got to vacuum the floor yourself, right. <laughs> just to, 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 to get a little context in your life. So um, that's how I view it. I, I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna take away the commodity stuff, and there'll always be room for the you know top twenty percent. But the top twenty percent will be the top twenty percent, not the you know the guy who you recruit. The you go well, this guy's just kind of mediocre at software yeah. programming, but somehow he's making more money than everybody else. I don't understand. And I think that's where it's gonna go. Personally, that's, so that's my view of this. Very good. Has your now your daughter's in college? Is she using it to write her papers? Did you ask her? She, you know, my daughter would, uh, you know, it's funny, my son probably would, but my daughter would, she would absolutely take that, you know, she would, she would consider that an insult if she thought that somebody could write a paper, uh, you know, that a, that a, a a semi-automated program could write a paper as well as she could, she'd be mad. (laughs) My son would go, my son would look at it from the CEO perspective and go, well, I don't, that paper doesn't matter. I might as well let, let, let the tool do it. (laughs) uh jamie thank you very much man really great interview really insightful and thorough overview of the business and how your industry works so for the listeners it is airmethods.com just one more time jamie cutler available on uh, linkedin um great great overview my friend appreciate you being on the rider flex show and sharing your story steve it's been a true pleasure and uh hope to stay in touch and thank you for having me on Thank you.